All right, let's, let's bow and pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. I thank you for this body of Christ here at Hope Bible Church. I thank you for your word, Lord, and uh, this wonderful opportunity we have to study it. We pray, Lord, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on each and every one of us so that we could truly understand what you're trying to teach us from your word today. We thank you, Lord, for who you are, for your, uh, as creator, as uh, sustainer, as uh, redeemer, and uh, the rock of our salvation. We thank you, Lord, for your great love for us, and especially demonstrated in sending your Son to die on the cross for our sins. We pray, Lord, today for uh, peace in Israel. Uh, we see uh, uh, terrible images and terrible violence, and we pray, Lord, that, uh, uh, that your peace would reign. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. So, part seven. Um, we're up to part seven, and so we're walking, working our way through these letters that uh, the risen Christ is sending to his churches, and today we're going to be looking at the letter to the church in Pergamum, uh, the letter to the worldly church. So today we're going to talk about this letter to this particular church, uh, but of course it has great application to churches throughout history and even churches today. So we're going to look at the correspondent, who's it from, the church, who's it going to, the city where that church is, the commendation that Christ gives to that particular church, the concern he has, the command he gives to his church, and then the counsel that he gives at the end of the letter. Uh, but first, let's take a look back and review what we went through last time. So the last time we looked at the letter to the church in Smyrna. Um, and Smyrna is the, one of the two letters that has no criticism. So they're rich uh, in a certain way that we talked about last time, not uh, materially, but spiritually. Uh, the exhortation is to be faithful, and the reward is not to be hurt by the second death. So, uh, of course, we have this uh, introduction at the beginning of each letter where Christ identifies himself in some way, and it's um, a... A identification that has previously been made in the first chapter. So in this, the letter from last time, he identified himself as the first and last who was dead and had come to life. So the first and last we talked about is an Old Testament title for God. And so it brings out uh, Christ's divinity and his equality in nature with God. And yet we have this, um, this amazing thing, how can this eternal God uh, be dead? And, of course, that's a, a reference back to his death, burial, and resurrection. He's come to life. Uh, as far as the church there in Smyrna, there's no other, um, there's no record elsewhere in the Bible about the founding of that church like there was with the church in Ephesus. Um, it was a dangerous place for the church, as, and that's a common theme for these churches that Christ is writing to, the the. the culture that they live is live in is persecuting them it's dangerous um, it was a, the city was a, a, a place where there was um, a fervent emperor worship um, and so that's kind of the um, um, the background and setting for where the church is um, it's an important city um, although it's not as important as Ephesus and Pergamum in terms of politics and economics, but it was said to be a very beautiful city. Uh, it had a famous street of gold that went by the hill where all the temples were, and it was also a noted center of science and medicine in that day. Uh, of course, we see that the, the, the Lord of the church sees his church. Nothing's hidden from him. Nothing escapes his vision. Uh, he sees that they're in tribulation, uh, which means that Greek words means pressure, so that they're under pressure. And they are standing up to that pressure, uh, particularly in terms of uh, worship. They, they continue to worship Christ and not the emperor. Um, they, f they were faced by the blasphemy of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. And so this is an identification of some, of some part of the opposition that they faced. Um, and we see this as a common theme in the, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts especially. There's continuous opposition 
to Christianity from the Jews. Uh, let's see, and then they were, um, they were identified as poor materially, extremely poor. The, the Greek word there for um, poverty is the extreme uh, version of the, 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 the most extreme Greek word for poverty, and yet they were rich spiritually. Once he commends them for standing up under persecution, then he tells them, and there's going to be more. More persecution is coming. A, a period of very intense persecution is coming. Um, but it's going to be a very short time. A short time of very intense persecution is still coming for this church that has been under pressure, under persecution. Um, he has no reprimand for this church, and he closes the letter with encouragement uh, that those who remain faithful re receive the crown of life. Um, and then he says, whoever has an ear to hear, he closes each of the letters like that, um, stressing the significance of listening to what God has to say in his scriptures. Uh, and so everybody who is a believer, uh, who comes through the persecution, he overcomes all, all uh, faithful believers, will not experience the second death. So the first death is physical death, the second death is eternal damnation, and that will never touch those who are followers of Christ. So that was what we, we talked about last time. Any leftover questions from last time before we start into the new letter? Okay, if you'll open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2, um, we're going to take a look at the next letter. Letter to this church in Pergamum. It starts in verse 12. So, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak, to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So that's the letter to the church at Pergamum. Uh, Pergamum is right there to the north. Uh, we've got uh, here, we've got Ephesus, and then Smyrna, and then Pergamum, uh, going from, uh, remember John is here in Patmos, and right across from here is Ephesus, and that was the first letter, and then Smyrna, and now we're up to Pergamum. And so there's a, per, there's a praise that they have remained faithful, uh, in, in, fact, in spite of the fact that they live in this, uh, in this place where Satan has his throne, but there's a criticism. They've got in their midst people who are engaging in idolatry and sexual immorality, and they're tolerating that. And there's an exhortation to repent from that, and the reward is um, this white stone with a new name. Uh, it's a, a, a hidden manna, a white stone, and a new name. It's actually three things, and we'll talk about those. Uh, just a little bit of in, intro from uh, uh, John MacArthur to this section. He says, for many people in today's church, the term worldliness has a quaint, old-fashioned ring to it. They associate it with prohibitions against things like dancing and going to movies or playing cards. Today's user-friendly, seeker-oriented, market-driven church doesn't preach much against worldliness. To do so might make unbelievers, not to mention many believers, uncomfortable and is therefore avoided as poor marketing strategy. 
But unlike much of the contemporary church, the Bible does not hesitate to condemn worldliness for the serious sin that it is. Worldliness is any preoccupation with or interest in the temporal system of life that places anything perishable before that which is eternal. Since believers are not part of the world system, according to John 15, they must not act as though they were. Do not be conformed to this world, wrote the Apostle Paul, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect, Romans 2.12. Because they have been redeemed by God's grace, believers are called to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, Titus chapter 2. Pure and undefiled religion, notes James, consists in keeping oneself unstained by the world, James chapter 1, because friendship with the world is hostility toward God, therefore whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, James chapter 4. And then in First John, so the same Apostle John in his first epistle, chapter 2, makes the believer's duty to avoid worldliness unmistakably clear, do not love the world, nor the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. The church at Pergamum, like much of today's church, had failed to heed the biblical warnings against worldliness. Consequently, it had drifted into compromise and was in danger of becoming intertwined with the world. That would be the next step in the downward spiral from the Ephesian church's loss of its first love. So the Ephesian church lost its first love, and Christ warned them about that. This is worse. This is kind of the next step in that uh, downward spiral, to start loving the world. Lose the first love of Christ, and what's the next thing that happens? Your love is transferred to the world, and that was what was happening here in Pergamon, and uh, Jesus is warning about that. Um, So, uh, let's dive in. Uh, The introduction. So we have the uh, same kind of introduction as we had in the other letters, and taking a different phrase from the uh, uh, the initial uh, the the introduction from chapter one. We had this description of the risen Christ standing in the midst of his seven lampstands. So standing in the midst of his churches, holding the seven stars, and he's des- described in various ways in that first chapter, and then he keeps using a different aspect of that description in the introduction to each one of these letters. And for this one, he uses the one who has the sharp two-edged sword to identify himself. So through this, through John, through the Apostle John, he's identifying himself. Christ is identifying himself as the letter. Um, and using one of the descriptions from John's vision in chapter 1. Uh, the sharp two-edged sword in other places in Scripture refers to the Word of God. Uh, Hebrews 4, for example, uh, says that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit and of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so that's the picture that we have here in the introduction to this letter. Here's this sharp two-edged sword coming out from Christ. Um, The Apostle Paul also uses the metaphor of a sword to describe the word in Ephesians chapter 6. And this two-edged nature of the sword, um, potency and power exposing and judging the inmost thoughts of the human heart. That's the word picture that we get from all of Scripture. Um, And here in this particular passage of Scripture, that's definitely the image we get. And so that description of Jesus here in the introduction to this letter pictures him as judge and executioner. That's what a sword does. Um, And so when John describes the appearance of Christ in the second coming later on in Revelation chapter 19, he uses this same imagery. John writes that from his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. 
Um, and so this imagery is not positive. Uh, we, we, get a, we get an early indication that things are not quite right with this church, and um, it's not a, a gentle uh, Christ here in this picture when we have the sharp two-edged sword coming out. Um, uh, it's the first negative introduction of Christ. Uh, in the, the, the introductions in the first two churches were positive. This one is not. Um, the Pergamon church faced imminent judgment. So disaster loomed on the horizon for this worldly church. Uh, it was and is but a short step from compromising with the world to forsaking God altogether and facing his wrath. And so that's the warning that Jesus is making. Um, it's not too late, but it's close to being too late here. Uh, so it's a harsh introduction. Uh, the church in Pergamum is symbolic of many churches throughout history. This has happened before. It's, gonna, it's happened throughout history. It's happening today uh, that have compromised with the world. Uh, that spirit of compromise was especially evident uh, later on in the 4th to the 7th century. Um, it got really bad uh, after AD 313. The Emperor Constantine adopted Christianity and made it the religion of the empire. And the church became entwined, essentially married to the political system in Rome. So that worldliness was synonymous with the church. So they were no longer persecuted, but things got much, much worse for the church when they became the official religion of the Roman Empire and became entangled with the world. Uh, today, in some ways, worldliness is still rampant in the church. That's been the case throughout history, and um, it, it has gone in ebbs and flows, but it seems to be um, prominent in today's church. The visible church, anyway. Uh, worldliness, we see that all around. Uh, churches, sometimes even whole denominations, have departed from the true faith and embraced worldly, philosoph worldly uh, philosophically and, and morally. Um, and in some places, state churches still exist uh, in spiritually impotent forms. Uh, like the church at Pergamum, they fall under judgment by the Lord of the true church. So we see that today. We see churches that have compromised by the world. They've uh, brought worldly philosophy into the church, um, elevated above the word of God. And that's nothing new. We, we see that having happened here in the first century. And it continued. It happened in the third through the seventh, fourth through the seventh century, especially with Rome intertwining with the church. And we see it happening in our day as well. Uh, the book of Acts does not record the founding of this church at Pergamum. Uh, just like uh, uh, Smyrna, the last church was not mentioned in Acts either. This one is not mentioned in Acts. Ephesus was definitely mentioned many times in Acts, but not this one. Um, according to Acts chapter 16, Paul did pass through Mysia, which is the region uh, it, where Pergamum is located. So he, he passed through the region, but there's nothing about him stopping in uh, Pergamum. Uh, that was on his second missionary journey. Uh, there's no record that the apostle ever preached the gospel or founded a church there at that time. Uh, so we can only speculate how it was formed. Uh, most likely it was founded during Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Remember, he was there three years. And Acts chapter 19 tells us that during that time where he was in Ephesus for three years, the gospel went out from there to be preached throughout the province of Asia. So most likely uh, Paul founded a robust church in Ephesus and then there were church plants that's, that radiated out from Ephesus and most likely that's how churches like Smyrna and Pergamum were founded. But we don't know. There, there's no definitive record of that in, in the scripture. Because the church was surrounded by the pagan culture, it was exposed continually to the allurements and the, 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 the strong um, allurements to familiar sins. Uh, it also faced severe animosity from the persecuting emperor worships, worshipers. So uh, we, we've seen this before in the other cities, emperor worship. Emperor worship was evidently even worse in Pergamon than it was in these other cities. Uh, it, was north, it was about 100 miles north of Ephesus, um, and Smyrna about halfway between. Uh, unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, it was not a port city. So the first two that we looked at were, had uh, harbors. This one was uh, far enough inland there was no harbor at all associated with Pergamum. Uh, not on the Aegean Sea. And it was also not on a major trade route. Uh, yet it was the capital 
the ancient capital of the province of Asia. Uh, and so it was considered a great city because it was the capital city. Um, the Roman uh, historian Pliny called it by far the most distinguished city in Asia. And that was because of the politics, that it was the, the political capital. Uh, by the time John wrote Revelation, Pergamum had been the capital of uh, the Asian region for 250 years. Uh, the king uh, at, in 133 BC decided to make his kingdom uh, part of Rome. Uh, he bequeathed his kingdom to Rome, and because he did that, they made it the capital, and uh, it was still the capital uh, at the time John was writing. Uh, Pergamum survives today. It's uh, the, the Turkish city of Bergama. Um, and so uh, some of the cities have disappeared, but this one still exists, uh, Bergama. Uh, much of per Pergamum was built on a large conical hill, a um, thousand feet above the plain below. And so it's, um, I've seen some pictures. Has anybody been to Pergamum? Uh, did a footsteps of Paul trip or anything? Yeah, it, the, from the pictures, it looks like you can stand up on this hill and you can see for miles and miles because it's a thousand feet up and the plane is all down below there. I just wondered if anybody had actually seen it with their own eyes. So a big, a big giant hill that this, uh, this city was built on. Um, and there are some records from... Um, Archaeologists, uh, for example, uh, this man named Sir William Ramsey, um, an English archaeologist, he said, beyond all other sites in Asia Minor, it gives the traveler the impression of a royal city, the home of authority. The rocky hill on which it stands is so huge and dominates the broad plan of the Caicos River Valley so proudly and boldly. That's what Sir William Ramsey says about his uh, time there uh, investigating Pergamum. It also had a huge library, uh, 200,000 handwritten volumes. So it was the second largest library in the ancient world. The library at Alexandria in Egypt was the largest library, and Pergamum's was the second largest in, uh, in ancient times. Uh, it was, so it was an important center of culture and learning. Um, in fact, the, uh, there was a little bit of a uh, rivalry between Alexandria and Pergamum about these libraries, and so um, the Egyptians wrote on papyrus, and the papyrus plant was essentially, Egypt had most of the plants that, did, that made papyrus. And when Ptolemy found out that Pergamum was trying to build a big library, he banned the export of papyrus to Pergamum to keep them from being able to build up their library. And so Pergamum actually invented a new uh, medium for writing um, called parchment. And the word parchment comes from Pergamum. It's the, the stuff that comes from Pergamum. That's what parchment is, uh, animal skin. And so they, they were forced to find something else to write on because the Alexandrians wouldn't let them have any more, um, any more um, writing materials. They had to come up with this new writing material. So anyway, that comes from Pergamum. Um, important center of culture and learning. Um, the, it's also the hometown of the physician Galen, who was the second most prominent. So the only ancient uh, uh, doctor anybody's ever heard of is Hippocrates from the Hippocratic Oath. But the second most famous uh, physician of ancient times was a man named Galen, and he's from Pergamum. So famous center of learning, medicine, uh, big library, 200,000 handwritten volumes. This was the city of Pergamum. So an important political and cultural city, as opposed to economic like, like Ephesus. Okay, uh, the city saw itself as the defender of Greek culture in, in Asia Minor, so that's why they were building up this big library, culture and learning. Um, there's a large uh, depiction on the base of the altar of the Zeus that commemorates a victory over invading barbarians. They were defenders of Greek culture. An important center of worship of the four main deities of the Greco-Roman world. They had temples dedicated to Athena, to Asclepius, Dionysus, and Zeus, all located on the top of that gigantic hill. There's still ruins there of temples on that giant hill. But over all those worships of Greek uh, gods was the worship of 
the cult of the worship of the emperor. Most intense here in Pergamum. Uh, it, it existed, and it was a big issue in some of the other cities, but it was worse here. Worse in Pergamum than anywhere else. First temple devoted to emperor worship in 29 BC. Uh, later, the city would build two more temples. Uh, the first one was to Emperor Augustus, and then one to Emperor Trajan, one to Emperor Septimus Severus. So they were really serious about their emperor worship. Um, it became the center of emperor worship in the province, which makes sense for the political capital. For the political capital, but to be the center of the worship of the political emperor. Uh, but that's, that's what happened. Um, so in Pergamum, more than any other city, Christians were in danger of harm from the emperor worship cult. Uh, elsewhere, as we talked about before, there was one day a year where you were required to bring sacrifices to the emperor. And in some cities, you could get the death penalty, so we saw before, if you didn't bring the uh, worship that one day. But in Pergamum, it was every day. Uh, they were in danger every day from uh, people that were trying to force them into emperor worship. Not just once a day like we saw in, in some of the other cities. Uh, and then we, we get this, uh, we'll talk about this guy later, this martyr Antipas was executed, probably because he refused to worship uh, the emperor. Uh, so th I, there's a picture I've got here of some ruins on the very top of that hill and the fact that you can see for miles and miles uh, away because it's far from the ocean, but you can see the ocean from there. So, any questions about the city itself, uh, Pergamum? So, we're gonna now we're gonna get the contents of the letter. Yes, it was destroyed also. So, the, the contents of this library was later actually transferred to Alexandria um, in the 600s, and when the library in Alexandria was destroyed, all this stuff was destroyed too. Yeah. So, the the, the Muslims destroyed the one in Alexandria. And at the time they destroyed it, all the, the stuff, the books that were from this library were in Alexandria. Yeah. Yeah. So was yeah. the library given to uh, Cleopatra or, or? Cleopatra stole it. Stole it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cleopatra, she, she walked through with her army and took it and took it back to Alexandria. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so they tried, so her, her and Ptolemy. You know, T Ptolemy was the first one to try to stop it from being built, and then later Cleopatra came by and, and took it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, if you go to Berlin, there's a museum called the Pergamon Museum. And the, the German archaeologists went there in the 1800s, and they took everything that wasn't nailed down. Um, and it's, it's in Berlin. It's a, it's, a, it's a beautiful museum. It's really nice. Uh, I would recommend it. If you go to Berlin, go to that Pergamon Museum. It's, it's wonderful. All right, so the content of this letter. Uh, so, the, so here's what Jesus says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast my name, and he did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Uh, despite the difficult circumstances in which they found themselves, the believers in Pergamum courageously maintained their faith in Jesus Christ, so he commends them for that. He commends them for holding fast his name. Even though they lived in this place that was that uh, Christ characterizes as, as where Satan's throne is, uh, there have been many suggestions about what that means. Um, some have identified it with this magnificent altar of Zeus, which the Germans uprooted and took with them, uh, is now in Berlin. Um, Others connect Satan's throne with the worship. <clears throat> this was one of the main centers of the worship of the god Asclepius. And that god was the, god, the snake god. Uh, so the symbol of it was a snake. Um, and they, the supplicants would go to this temple and they had snakes slithering around the floor and you would sleep overnight in the temple and hope that one of the snakes would touch you and then you would be healed. Um, th that was the idea. Well, they were all non-poisonous snakes, so they had non-poisonous snakes, um, <clears throat> and because that wouldn't have been very good marketing for this for this uh, temple if if everybody kept getting bit by the snake and dying. Um, so, um, so that's symbolism that we have as um, as Satan as the serpent is one possibility. Um, so it could, but it, there was many reasons why we could, the symbolism works for this place to be uh, where Satan has his throne. 
Did I see a hand up over here? Did I miss a hand? No. Um, so in the midst of those difficult and trying circumstances, the believers continued to dwell, uh, permanent residents, um, not merely passing through. And so in modern terms, what he's saying there is they hung in there in spite of difficult circumstances. Uh, despite persecution and suffering, uh, they endured. The believers at Pergamum continued to hold fast the name of Christ and did not deny the faith. Uh, they didn't deviate from fidelity to Christ or to the central truths of the Christian faith. Uh, the faithful believers there exemplified the truth of Christ's words in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. There they were, where the, the gates of Hades were right there, the throne of Satan, it was not overpowering this church. So that's his commendation. They were maintaining this faithfulness even in the days of Antipas. So there's, he, uh, Christ references a specific example of martyrdom, uh, and we don't know anything else about this Antipas guy from Scripture. This is the only place he's mentioned in Scripture. But he gets this unbelievable um, description from Christ, my witness, my faithful one. Uh, imagine having Christ identify you with these words, my witness, my faithful one. Uh, but he was killed among them where Satan's throne is, obviously killed in Pergamum. Uh, Christ goes out of his way to make sure that he identifies this one guy, faithful guy, killed um, as for being a witness for Christ there in Pergamum. Uh, we don't know anything about Antipas other than this text. Uh, but it, it's probable, from the way he's described as my witness and my faithful one, that he was most likely a leader in the church who had been killed. There is extra-biblical tradition about this guy. Um, there is a second century writing that says he was roasted to death inside a brass bull during persecution instigated by Emperor Domitian. Um, so that's, um, unfortunately, there's, uh, there's lots of um, evidence, uh, written evidence, about this particular way that Romans killed people. They put people inside a giant metal hollow animal, like a bull, and then they roasted them alive inside it. Um, and that's what, it's, that's what the extra-biblical writing says happened to Antipas that he was killed for his Christian witness by being roasted alive inside a, a metal bull. Um, so, um, the word that eventually became transliterated in English, uh, this word, uh, martus, um, witness, means witness, um, it eventually came to mean the, the word for a witness who was executed for Christ, killed for Christ, martyr. The word martyr comes from that that Greek word, witness. Uh, so somebody who was not only a witness, but a witness to the point of being killed for his witness. Um, the, the word martyr. Because of his faith and faithfulness, the Lord commended Antipas with a title that's elsewhere used of Christ. Uh, the faithful one, uh, the faithful witness. In Revelation chapter 1, Christ is described that way. In Revelation chapter 3 is as well. So he gives this Antipas a title of, of his own to, to this, this man. Um, then, so that's the commendation. Um, then we come to the problems. So uh, he's built them up. And now there's, he's going to deal with the issues. He's not going to ignore the fact that there are issues here. Um, but then we get to the problem. So verse, starting in verse 14, But I have a few things against you, because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So uh, it's not everybody in the church, but you have some. You have some of these people there in your church. Uh, the church at Pergamum remained, and so as part of the church, that means that they're professing Christ, these people that are doing this. Uh, the church at Pergamum remained loyal to Christ and Christian truth it faithfully preserved at the very headquarters, as it were, of satanic opposition, in the, even in the face of martyrdom. Yet, all was not well in Pergamum. He commends them, and then he says he has these things against you. His concern was that they had some who hold to false teaching. 
the majority of believers at Pergamum were faithful and loyal to the truth. As we just saw, there were some that were part of this church, members of this church, associated with the church, claiming the name of Christ, who came to believe false doctrine. Uh, and so many in the church, not, I don't know how many, let's just say there are some in the church who make light of doctrine and biblical and theological error as viewed as unimportant, but that's not the perspective of the Lord of the church. Uh, he doesn't see it that way. Um, the, if there are those in the midst of the church who are teaching false doctrine, um, it's a serious issue, and he comes at them with the sword of the double-edged sword. Um, specifically, Christ was concerned about two heresies being tolerated at Pergamum. Uh, probably um, they're intertwined, uh, but it's, he identifies them in two different ways. One associated with an Old Testament character and the other with a New Testament person. Uh, first, some were following the teaching of Balaam. The story of Balaam, of course, is in the book of Numbers, Numbers 22 to 25. Uh, he was a notorious Old Testament prophet, or false prophet, um, and he was... He was hired to curse the Israelites, essentially, by another king. Um, Balak, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse Israel. Um, he, tried, he tried to do it, and God wouldn't let him. God would not let him curse Israel. He tried three times. And since he couldn't, get, he couldn't do it that way, he came up with a different plan. He was unable to curse the Israelites. He decided to corrupt them. Uh, by teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things, sacrifice to idols, and to commit acts of immorality. So instead of just cursing them, he tried to um, corrupt them instead. He plotted to use a Moabite woman to, women to lure the Israelites to imitate the godless world around them in sexual immorality and adultery. Uh, Numbers chapter 25 and later on summarized in chapter 31. Um, and so that sort of blasphemous union with Satan and false gods would debase the Israelites and destroy their spiritual power. Um, Balaam's plan succeeded to a certain extent, not to the extent he hoped, but the, but it it he did was able to introduce some uh, Moabite women and sexual immorality and adultery, and God took immediate action, immediate and severe action. He struck down twenty four thousand of them uh, in Numbers chapter twenty five, including many of the leaders. Um, that drastic action halted the Israelites' slide into immorality and idolatry at that time. But you see the kind of uh, swift and severe action that God will take if that sort of thing is creeping into his people. Um, so, like the Israelites were seduced by Balaam's false teachings, some in the church at Pergamum were lured to mix the pagan system. We see that in Jude 10 and 11. Um, and just as God severely chastised Israel for such a union, the Lord Jesus Christ threatens to do the same in this passage, uh, to take severe action. Uh, so that's one. The second way of looking at this kind of heresy that was being tolerated in Pergamum involved a New Testament figure. Uh, we, we, we saw this name uh, before, Nicolaitans. There were some there who, in the same way, held the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Uh, we don't know much about the Nicolaitans. Um, it, in some way, it indicates the teaching of the Nicolaitans led to the same sort of wicked behavior as that of the followers of Balaam. It seems to be um, making a comparison to those two. In the same way, it says. In the same way as the, the, the same kind of error as Balaam, you have these Nicolaitans. So we discussed this previously in the church in Ephesus um, about the Nicolaitans. The, the Ephesians did not tolerate the teaching of the Nicolaitans, but here in Pergamum they are. They're bringing in the teaching of the Nicolaitans. They're, they're tolerating the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Um, some scholars say it's, uh, they're named after the man Nicholas, one of the seven men chosen to be to oversee distribution of food in Acts chapter 6, so one of the original deacons. Um, and we don't know, it's not clear at this point whether uh, this guy Nicholas became an apostate 
some early church fathers have written that that was the case. Or that he had these followers that used his name and then perverted his teachings. Not certain. But early church fathers say it was Nicholas himself who went down this, this path. One of the early deacons. Yeah. So, um, abusing the biblical teaching on Christian liberty, the Nicolaitans also taught that Christians could participate in pagan orgies. So they seduced the church with immorality and idolatry. This idea of synchronization, syncretism with the world um, is what the Nicolaitans evidently taught, and that had infected this church in Pergamum. Not everybody, but there were those in the church who said you could worship these idols over here and then come to church on Sunday. Um, yep. Oh yes, yeah. We'll talk about that here in a second. Uh, yeah. So uh, he goes on to say, "So you have some who, in the same way, hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent, or else I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth." And so they were allowing them. Uh, they weren't. They were tolerating them, um, and that was condemned. Uh, the majority of believers of Pergamon did not participate in the errors of either of these heretical groups. They remained standfastly loyal to Christ, but by tolerating the groups, refusing to exercise church discipline, they shared in their guilt, um, which brought the Lord's judgment on the whole church because they were tolerating these people in their midst. Now, we have to stop here and make a distinction um, this is not saying that you don't, um, that, that this is, there's a distinction between uh, what's happening inside a church and what, um, uh, what your evangelistic field is. So you, you have a field of evangelism, which is unbelievers that are engaged in idolatry and sexual immorality, and you're supposed to go after those in an evangelistic way. But if you have such inside your church that are calling themselves brothers, you cannot tolerate them. That's the consistent teaching of the Bible, uh, that you cannot tolerate that side of behavior inside your church by people who, who are claiming the name of Christ. Uh, church discipline is necessary. Um, and it's necessary for the church, the health of the church, the purity of the church, but it's also necessary for those people. Um, those people are on a dangerous path. They're about to have the judgment of Christ. Uh, in the Old Testament, we saw God strike down 24,000 of them. Um, they're in danger. And so if we love those people who are going astray, uh, just to tolerate the, the 21st century word tolerate, in other words, just look the other way or even celebrate their sin, uh, that's very dangerous to the church as a whole and to the people that we're pretending that we love. We don't love them if we're not exercising church discipline when they have gone astray. Okay, a any questions about that before we keep going? Yeah, yeah. so in the Jerusalem Council, they say don't eat meat sacrificed to idols, Acts chapter 15. Paul later on is talking about if there's a weaker brother and it could cause him to stumble, I'll, I'm not going to eat meat. And so the idea is if you're, if you're in a situation where you've got a church where it's um, in a city that has idol worship all around it, and so you most likely many of your um, church members are coming out of the practice of idol worship. So that's the situation that, that I think that Paul is addressing. So if you have a brother like that, um, he, he has grown up with the idea that this idol is a god and, and, and it means something to, to sacrifice and worship, then you don't want to... Um, you don't want to um, damage that brother's conscience. Even if, even if you're a mature believer and you were never an idol worshiper, and so you know that that meat is nothing and an idol is nothing, and so you're, you can eat that with a clear conscience, the other brother who comes out of an idol worshiping background, he remembers sacrificing to that idol, and it, and it bothers his conscience. Um, and so in order to avoid bothering his conscience, Paul said, bothering the other guy's conscience, I, I won't eat meat, even though I know 
the idol's nothing, the meat's nothing, I have liberty to do that. I won't exercise that liberty in front of a brother who came out of an idol-worshipping thing. Um, I, I just won't do it. Um, I, 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 uh, there's a modern example. Uh, how, do you, how many of you guys know uh, a guy named uh, Pastor Vody Bakum? Ever heard of him? Vody Bakum. So he grew up as a, uh, in a home where his mother was a Buddhist for a while. And so his mother had a little statue of Buddha and used to bow down to the little statue of Buddha. And he writes in one of his books how much it bothers him, really bothers him, to see uh, any statue of Buddha anywhere. Even though um, he knows now that that little hunk of wood, that little piece of metal is nothing, it just, it, it's, uh, just to see that thing just sets him off because he watched his mother bow down to that statue. Um, and so, you know, I, I may know as a mature believer that that little statue is nothing, but I, I would never, in front of Vody Bakum, you know, deliberately take him by someplace where there's this little statue or, you know, have one of those, even, even having a, a, you know, a coffee table book with the pictures of that statue, maybe from a, a history lesson or something open. I wouldn't do that in front of him because it really bothers him because he grew up in a situation where he saw his mother worshiping that particular statue. And so that's the kind of uh, Christian liberty issue that Paul's talking about in, in his letter. And to avoid that um, difficulty, that entanglement, um, and to avoid the temptation to go back to idol worship, the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 said that all Christians should avoid eating meat sacrificed to idols because of that, because of damaging the conscience of, possibly damaging the conscience of another brother. So they, they failed to exercise church discipline when there were people inside the church claiming to be Christians that were following these practices, these pagan practices. Uh, the only remedy for sinful behavior, of course, is repentance, uh, to turn away from that sinful behavior. Uh, repent, metanoia, uh, a word used in scripture to describe a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. So uh, repentance is not just saying you're sorry. Uh, repentance is changing your behavior. Change of mind that, that always, if it's true repentance, always leads to a change of behavior. Uh, tolerance, of course, in our modern culture is the, the primary virtue, it seems. Uh, however, in this context, tolerating heretical teaching or sinful behavior in the church is not a virtue, but a sin. Um, and so that's, uh, uh, that's something that uh, we have to keep in mind that um, when we engage with the culture, if, if somebody... Um, you know, if somebody accuses you of being intolerant, that's like the worst epithet that somebody can hurl at you. Um, but there are definitely um, uh, situations described in, in Scripture that says we're, we're not to tolerate certain things. Um, and it's not, it's not up to us to identify what those things are. Those things are identified by Scripture. So, um, Scripture identifies, the Lord identifies what is good and what is evil. Um, and he calls his people to holiness and righteousness. And that holiness and righteousness is defined by scripture, uh, not by us, uh, and certainly not by the world. Um, but we have all these admonitions in scripture, do not love the world, don't be conformed to the world. Um, and we're in many places called to um, uh, in this case particular, condemned, the church is condemned for tolerating worldly behavior inside the church. Um, and so in many, many instances, of course, um, tolerance is good. But it's not good in every instance. And this is an instance where it's specifically identified as sinful behavior to tolerate something that the Lord condemns inside his bride, uh, his church. Uh, so a serious matter is uh, this misguided tolerance that should they fail to repent of failure to discipline, Christ warns them, I am coming to you quickly. 
and I will make war against them with the sword in my mouth. Um, so this is very harsh language. Uh, they're going to be at war with Christ. Um, that's not a place you want to be. That's not a place that you want to be as a church, Christ coming with the sword to make war against you. Um, I mean, think of Joshua when he encountered um, the pre-incarnate Christ. Are you with us or with our enemies? Neither. I'm here as the... But just think if he, if he had said, I'm against you, <laughs> uh, how terrifying that would have been to uh, Joshua. But that's the situation here. He's coming to make war uh, against them. Uh, and and it's, uh, it's an interesting shift of program, uh, pronouns. I'm coming to you, coming to make war against them. Um, the implication, really, of that uh, phraseology in Greek is that I'm coming for all of you because you're tolerating this group inside you. I'm coming for all of you. I'm coming to you, broadly, make war against them. But the reason I'm coming to you is because of them. Uh, but the implication is he's coming for the whole church because of them. Uh, the entire church faced the sword of Christ's judgment. Uh, the heretics for practicing their heresy and iniquity and the rest of the church for tolerating it. Uh, I have this against you that you have these people among you. I have this against you, the whole church, that you have them in the midst of your church. So, uh, very frightening. Uh, should be frightening. Meant to be frightening uh, to this church. So, the church cannot tolerate evil in any form inside the church. Uh, and so, there's other passages in the church that talk about tolerating things inside the church. And Paul, at one point, says, not to mean that you should separate yourself from unbelievers, in the sense that you don't go out and evangelize unbelievers, um, but you can't, you can't have somebody inside your church claiming to be a, a member of Christ and a member of your body who does these things. That's what church discipline is for. So um, there's another example, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They're the boastful Corinthians proudly tolerating a man guilty of incest. Uh, Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you were, in fact, unleavened. What is Paul telling them there? He said, you're tolerating and you're celebrating this wicked behavior from a member of your church. You've got to get rid of that. You've got you to get that behavior out of your church. Because, what does Paul say? A little bit of leaven spreads through the whole church. So that's a, a word picture he makes, that if you're going to tolerate this sort of immorality inside your church, it's going to spread. It's not going to stay with just this, this one man. Error will never be suppressed by compromising with it. Um, today's kind of non-confrontational attitude in some churches is largely repeating the error of the Pergamum church on a grand scale and faces the judgment of the Lord of the church. Not a good place to be um, if you're a church. And so uh, I can, I'll just give you a couple examples. So there's some major Protestant denominations like the Lutheran church and the uh, United Methodist church that, um, that have openly practicing homosexual clergy, for example, that, that do uh, homosexual marriages in their church and op baptize openly practicing homosexual people. And um, that, that sort of thing is, um, the, this, the scripture condemns that behavior. And of course we have, uh, Paul in another place says, such were some of you, talking about members of a church. So it's not like you don't go out and try to win souls of people outside the church, regardless of what kind of behavior they're engaged in. But inside the church, the, 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 you, you put off the old man, you put on the new man, you're becoming conformed to the likeness of Christ in your process of sanctification. You, you can't just have the same behavior that you had outside the church, inside the church. Um, that is uh, universally condemned in Scripture. Um, but we see that in many, in, in whole denominations now, uh, are tolerating that behavior and celebrating that behavior inside the church. 
Um, and that's what's condemned here in, to the church in Pergamum. And so, uh, you know, Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And so his attitude towards this um, kind of uh, immorality inside his church has always been the same. It was the same in the book of Numbers when he... It was it was bad enough that he slaughtered twenty four thousand Israelites. It's bad enough that he's coming to make war against one of his churches because of it uh, in the Book of Revelation. And it's bad enough today that he's just as angry about it, um, and it will bring just as much wrath in the twenty first century if a church tolerates what the Bible identifies as wicked behavior among its members. Um, any questions about any of that? Yes, Raymond. Yeah, so yeah, there are controversies uh, of many characters and many stripes in, in many churches. Now, I would say that there are um, levels of wickedness. Um, any, any sin is bad. Any deviation from the word is bad. Um, but there are obviously levels to, to wickedness. Um, and this particular level of wickedness has Christ saying he's coming to make war on this church. That's different from what he said to the other churches. Even Ephesus, they, were, they had lost their first love, but he wasn't coming with a sword to make war on them. But for this, he's coming with a sword to make war on them. Um, and so there, there are, it's obvious that there's a distinction. And um, while I think that it's wrong to have women pastors, um, I, I don't. I don't see the same kind of commentation that you get with something like having this rampant sexual immorality coming into your church. Um, sin is sin. There, there's. There's. We shouldn't tolerate any sin within our church, and we should exercise um, spiritual discernment, and we should exercise spiritual discipline, uh, church discipline. Um, but just like there are there are different crimes um, in terms of um, the kind of punishment that you get in this world. I'm not talking about the punishment that's coming uh, at the second death. Um, at the, the second death, any deviation from God's 100% holy standard will land you in the lake of fire. Um, just one. One deviation of any kind will land you in the lake of fire. Um, but punishments in this world um, have degrees. And they've always had degrees. Um, but toleration of deviation from God's standard is always wrong and always is a matter of discipline. We'll bring judgment. There are different levels of judgment, though. Yes. So I, I do not know. I don't. I don't know what the fate of that church was. It, there's that church is gone. So it, it disappeared sometime in history. Um, yeah, but yeah, they are. Yeah. Well, yes. Like a really powerful statement, like two minutes ago. Any deviation from God's standard will end end you up in the lake of fire. Something yes. like that. Yeah. So how does that? Um, so that's why we need Christ. That's that's why we need Christ. Because right. there's no there's no possible way that I as a human being can meet that standard right. on my own. I can't do it. Yeah. Christ did, right. and His rich righteousness can be imputed to me okay. Um, okay. if I if I repent and by the grace of God through faith yeah. um, I can um, my sin is imputed to him. He paid for it on the cross. His righteousness, his righteous life imputed to me. Right. Right. And so Christ paid for that. Yeah. Okay. Right. And so, yeah, think about it this way. Uh, God is a perfectly just God. And so every sin, every single sin, every single sin of thought or action or inaction, will, he knows and will be paid for, will be punished, every single sin. And so your sin can either be paid for by Christ on the cross yeah. or it can be paid for by me being tossed in the lake of fire. I just wanted to hear you make that distinction. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, every sin, one by one, all uh, the books are opened. 
<laughs> the books are open at the white th great white throne judgment. Look through the deeds. Uh, every deed has to be paid for. And so if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then that deed was paid for by Christ. If your name is not written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then I have to pay for those deeds one by one. And even one of them gets me tossed into the lake of fire. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yep. So uh, in terms of keeping the church pure then, um, there, there are different levels of warnings in these letters. So obviously Christ sees the churches differently. However, the, an additional warning is that any deviation is leaven for your church. That will, the word picture is uh, working dough, and if you put a little bit of leaven in, it goes through the whole lump. And so if you put a little bit, if you tolerate a little bit of deviation from God's word, you end up with the the 21st century Lutheran church with uh, homosexual pastors marrying homosexuals and uh, in the church. That's what you end up with. That's not where they started, as Richard pointed out, but that's where they've ended up once the leaven worked all, all the way through. And so <clears throat> what's the lesson for us, uh, Hope Bible Church, in 2023 is uh, read the Word, study the Word, and obey what the word says um, and so and we as your elders take that very seriously uh, to, to study the word understand the word apply the word in the life of the church um, teach the word so that everybody in the body uh, knows and understands the word and exercise church discipline where necessary uh, to keep the church pure and to rescue a member of the church that's going in a dangerous direction. So uh, the idea of church discipline is not primarily focused on um, punishment. It's primarily focused on restoration. Um, and so the idea is restore a brother who's fallen into sin by this process. Matthew 18, process of church discipline. And we take that very seriously here at Hope Bible Church. Um, okay, so he's coming to make war. Uh, error uh, can't be, you can't compromise with error and, and hope that it'll go away. It won't. Uh, it won't. Satan's not going to, he's not going to be satisfied with any, if you, if you give Satan a, an inch, he'll take a mile, and he'll just keep going and going and going and going. Um, and then we have the ending to the letter, which is very similar to others. He was here, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But then we've got a little, um, a little extra here on this one. To him who overcomes, to him will be given some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. So he's got this counsel and encouragement. Um, it's once again stresses, listen to the word of God. Listen to what God has to say and obey Christ's words. Um, it's addressed to, at the end, this counsel and encouragement is him who overcomes. That's a phrase that encompasses all believers. Uh, he promises three things to the faithful members of the church at Pergamum. First, he promises to give them some of the hidden manna. Manna was, of course, in the Old Testament, the bread from heaven. The hidden manna represents, of course, Christ, uh, the bread of life who came down from heaven. That's, how Christ, that's a word picture of Christ. Um, there's much speculation about what this white stone symbolizes. Uh, some link it with the Urim and the Thummim on the breastplate of the high priest. Um, they were used to determine God's will and represented the right, and high, uh, right of the high priest to request guidance from God for the leader who could not approach God directly, but had come through the priestly structure. Uh, somehow God caused those stones to disclose his will. Uh, in, a, in a way that we don't, aren't clear uh, how, that, how that worked. Uh, but evidently, the will of God can be determined by this Urim and Thummim. Uh, according to this view, the white stones, uh, by his white stones, God promises the overcomer's knowledge of his will. Others identify the white stone as a diamond, the most precious stone, symbolizing God's precious gift. Um, however, um, the white stone... Um, in this particular culture, um, the, Roman had a, the Romans had a custom of awarding white stones to the victor of an athletic contest. So uh, there's a lot of speculation, but most likely this was a cultural reference for the time for these people that 
when you were a victor, you got one of these white stones. And the people that overcome are going to be victors. And they're going to get the victor's white stone with their name written on it. Uh, white stone inscribed with the athlete's name served as a ticket to a special awards banquet in those days. Um, and so that symbolism sounds right to me. That in those days, there was a white stone given with the athlete's name on it that was their ticket then to go to a special banquet for victors. Um, and so I think that fits. I think that, I think that fits. Uh, yeah, and it's a new name. Uh, in his view, Christ promises the overcomer's entrance to the eternal victory celebration. A uh, new name written on the stone, uh, as is self-evident from the phrase, we cannot know what that new name is until we receive it. And the word new there... Um, doesn't mean new as a, as a, in terms of uh, new contrasted to old. And new in the sense of qualitatively different. Um, so that word new doesn't mean new as opposed to an old name. It, it has new in terms of a qualitatively different uh, name. Um, so the new name will serve as each believer's admission pass into eternal glory. It will uniquely reflect God's special love for an adoption of every true child of his. So, um, still a little bit of speculation there, though. Uh, nobody, uh, I, I saw, I read a number of different commentaries, everybody believes something different about this white stone. Um, who knows? Um, okay. Uh, any, um, uh, the, the so the church faced the same choices that every church faces. Do you, you have some people that are going astray within your church, what do you do? Do you tolerate them? Do you exercise church discipline? Um, and uh, it could repent and receive the blessedness of eternal life and glory of heaven, or it could refuse to repent and face the terrifying reality of having Lord Jesus Christ declare war on it. Uh, maintaining the path of compromise ultimately leads to judgment. So, any, uh, we have uh, 90 seconds. Um, <laughs> any last, uh, last question? Yes. All right, let's, let me close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have gathered around your word. We thank you for the truths we see in it and for the warnings. Uh, we pray, Lord, that uh, here in Hope Bible Church we would uh, uh, maintain purity and holiness and righteousness. And uh, if there are uh, cases of, uh, of brothers or sisters straying, we pray, Lord, that through the, uh, the process of church discipline, we would be able to bring them to repentance and restoration. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that you've designed uh, the church so that we can, uh, we can encourage one another and lift one another up and that we can also hold one another accountable. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity that we have today to gather as uh, the local body of Christ and worship you in corporate worship. And we pray, Lord, that the worship we're about to give will be acceptable in your sight and will bring glory to your name. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.